Young, back to throw. In trouble, he's going to be sacked. No, gets away. He runs, gets away again, goes to the 40, gets away again, to the 35, cuts back at the 30, to the 20, the 50, the 10. He dives, touchdown, 49ers. What's up, 49ers faithful? It is Zane Acme and Al Sacco back with another episode of the 49ers Web Zone No Huddle Podcast. And Al, man, this team is always interesting one way or another. Ruben Foster, what are you doing? I, I can't believe when I saw that come out, it was probably 1030 West Coast time. Like, I could not believe it. I'm like, is this, is this a hoax? Is this somebody that's trying to troll people? And then you see people with the check marks on Twitter posting that Ruben Foster has been arrested yet again for domestic violence in the team hotel. I can't even begin to tell you how infuriated I was with this guy. It was unbelievable to see that come across my timeline, especially given the fact that the 49ers have done so much to help this guy out. And I just, I, I just cannot wait to hear what you think about that. You know, the nightmare season continues. I woke up, it was Sunday morning to it, and I said the same thing as you. I, I, I checked Twitter and, and saw everything going through, scrolling through, and I just I, I, I couldn't believe it. It's just crazy, the snowball effect of just things going wrong for the 49ers this season doesn't end and yeah i have a lot of thoughts on it and i have a feeling you and i are gonna have a pretty pretty good discussion on what we think in terms of just the overall impact of, of foster being drafted in the first round and then a year and a half later he's gone and what that does to the defense moving forward and then the redskins picking him up just crazy and foster's a story and i think another story that we need to get into is the 49ers and the picks that they've made i have some some numbers that i think people are going to be surprised about about exactly how much draft capital they've spent on defense since 2013 and it doesn't seem like they've progressed and it has been frustrating and, and we'll go over that and we'll talk about this loss to Tampa and, and what we should look for in over the next five games and positive things like Dante Pettis performance was, was very good. It was probably his best game as a, as a pro for sure. And, and Matt Breida looked great. So there were some positives there positives as we look to try to fix the 49ers moving forward. And our guest today is going to talk about that. He wrote an article he writes for the for the NFL Draft Network. He's the senior NFL draft analyst for them. It is John Ledyard. And John's article was about fixing the 49ers. And he wrote about cornerstone pieces that they have and guys that they should go after in free agency and, and then what they should do in the draft. And we got a chance to talk to John about it. And I think fans are really going to like it. Here we go. He is the COO and senior NFL draft analyst for the Draft Network. Welcome to the show, John Ledyard. John, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, before you get into the season and, and the, the Niners and everything, can you kind of tell us a little bit about the Draft Network and how you got started with it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we really, Trevor Sikkim and myself, we do five days a week a uh, Locked On NFL Draft podcast, and uh, we yeah, enjoyed it and watched the following kind of grow and grow and grow, and we thought, you know, why not? Yeah, it feels like the draft is just this massive growing entity and there's a lot of outlets out there to cover it, but does anybody really do the whole scope of this thing really well? And we felt like it was a need, uh, basically in the, in the football media community and, uh, people really wanted better coverage. We felt like every year as our podcast grew and kind of the draft grew, we just felt like there was people asking for more and more things that we weren't really able to provide them because we were working a bunch of other jobs. So from there it was, okay, can we pitch this idea? Can we come can we, you know, kind of flush it out? Can we, can we pitch this idea to someone who can, you know, provide us with the means financially to be able to go out and, and accomplish this thing? And 
you know, found that person and added, you know, asked Cal and Joe, uh, Cal Crabs, Joe Marino to be a part of the staff as well and kind of grown out the staff, Ben Solak and Brad Kelly and uh, Connor Rogers, Paige Demacus all helping out with uh, the site as well and doing different things and really just kind of taken off. And, you know, it's become uh, our kind of our sole focus, all of us in the sports media realm. And uh, there's really big things to come in January and February for the site. Um, that are going to be, I think, game-changing in the arena. I think people are going to be really excited about them. You know, mock draft simulator and uh, build your own big board things where fans are going to have a lot of interactive features to be able to interact with the draft on a level like never before. So uh, we're very serious about doing the draft uh, in a way that's never been done before. And we really believe, and our, our numbers have blown our minds so far, and it really seems to indicate that the draft is something that people just really, really love, and that just grows every single year and becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, how soon do you guys start planning for the next draft class? Is it one of those things where it's kind of a continuous analysis of what's going on in college, or do you kind of just like sit back after the season and look at who's who's eligible and who's staying in school and then kind of make a, a determination on who's going to be picked where? Yeah, before when we were working like 100 different jobs, you know, you're covering, I was covering Steelers and, you know, right, NFL stuff for another site, doing draft stuff on the side, you know, it was always kind of, you're always in catch-up mode, you know. But this year, I mean, I think we really – that we studied our, we each studied one conference in the off season uh, and over the summer and then watched a bunch of the other conferences as well. And then this year watching so much live and writing reports on games live. And, you know, we really feel like there's a great feel kind of even for freshmen uh, and sophomores who are going to be eligible next year. But then a lot of the guys we'll watch this year that we want to come out, won't come out and they'll go back to school. And so we'll have a pretty firm grip on kind of who they are at this point. But you know, really, after after this upcoming draft ends, everybody who didn't declare that's draft eligible for an extra year's draft, you know, probably within a couple of weeks of that draft, we'll start putting out a board just with our preliminary thoughts on those guys. Certainly not finished evaluations by any means. And then over that summer, over the over the 2019 summer, we'll uh, begin to add scouting reports to our database. Uh, summer scouting reports, at least, you know, strengths, weaknesses, basic stuff. We'll start adding to our database for prospects who are eligible for the 2020 draft. And then during the 2019 season uh, in college football, uh, probably around November, usually we start to take those strengths, weaknesses, basic summary type of stuff that we took in the summer. We look at their new tape from 2019 and we start to do their formal evaluations. That's the process we've just begun now. We probably have about uh, 75 to 100 formal evaluations done by at least one of us uh, Mm -hmm. on the site right now, but we have probably close to 400 scouting reports from our summer notes and some early in-season notes. So uh, the process really yeah, doesn't take long. It starts pretty much right after the next year's draft ends, especially when your sole focus kind of like it is ours. Unfortunately for 49ers fans, I think that we're all looking forward to next year's draft with the, <laughs> with the way the season's gone, right? We're kind of already looking towards these mock drafts and stuff like that. And like you see so many out there. So it's really cool. I think it's really great what you guys are doing and giving fans the, the ability to create their own big board. I think that's really great. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of fun with it for sure. And we think the best is definitely yet to come. And like, like Zane said, it's, it's been kind of a dark loss season for the 49ers, but <laughs> we loved your article about how to fix the team. And it got retweeted all over Twitter. A lot of fans were, were all about it. It was a great piece. And mm-hmm. wanted to start off in the article, you talked about cornerstone pieces for the Niners. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned specifically on offense, you brought up Garoppolo, Brita, Kittle, Goodwin, Staley, McGlinchey. And you also mentioned Dante Pettis. And Pettis was an interesting name in there to me because his development is so critical to this team. And he is coming off his best game as a pro in week 12. What were your thoughts on Pettis coming out of college? And do you see him as a big time wide receiver in years to come? You know, I saw Pettis as kind of a mid day two, late second round type of value 
I loved his game. I think he was my number four wide receiver in the class. I really liked his game. Uh, you know, I think that there's certain physical traits that he lacks that may keep him from being what most people would consider a you know, a true number one type of receiver. Uh, but, I mean, the ability to get open and to play inside and outside, it, you know, it's, it really translates very easily to the NFL. And that's why I think now that he's healthy, I just think his game is pretty simple to translate to the NFL. I mean, he already knows what he's doing. Uh, he's got good enough athleticism. Physically, yeah, there's going to be some matchups that try him a little bit. Um, but a good offensive coordinator moves him around, puts him in positions and space that he can win. And they, they just need a quarterback and get him the ball consistently. And I think that you're going to see him really take off in year two fully healthy uh, with the offense under his belt and with really the offense fully healthy and ready to turn the corner. So I think he's capable of big things in this offense for sure. Um, you know, He's capable of a 1,000-yard season you know, at least 18, 800 yards and being able to do things underneath that help the team move the sticks and do lots of things offensively. So, yeah, I'm a fan of Dante Pettis' game for sure. Um, I probably should have clarified in this part, like, the term cornerstone. not necessarily like everybody, you know, cornerstones, I probably am a little bit liberal with it was I defined, you know, Marcus Goodwin and Dante Pettis under that and everything. But I just mean guys that you want to start for your team for the next couple of years probably, you know, at the very least, um, that you can kind of, building pieces around these guys, but these guys should be part of the solution and not necessarily uh, part of the, uh, the the guys that you're trying to get rid of or replace. Um, and I just see Goodwin and Pettis and Kittle as, as those guys. Now they just need to find one more piece, I think, for that wide receiver core. Now on defense, speaking of guys we can build around, there's DeForest Buckner, there's Fred Warner, obviously Richard Sherman's there. But someone whose development on defense is just as important as Pettis on offense is Solomon Thomas. and as you, as you said, he needed another year and he has to improve on that pass rush. And he's kind of gone astray with that. They, they haven't played him inside as much. They're playing more on the edge. Can he really live up to that number three overall billing that came with last year's number one pick? It sure seems unlikely right now. You know, um, it is tough to, to kind of criticize some of these guys. So, you know, you look at Shannon and Lynch and you say, it took Solomon Thomas so early, you know, he hasn't panned out at all. Obviously, they deserve criticism for it. But if you look at the process behind drafting Solomon Thomas, it's really difficult to kind of foresee that this, this level of disappointment, at least. And I do think Solomon Thomas will get better next season. I think he'll continue to get better. Will he ever be number three pick valuable? You know, I, I, I don't know. But I mean, the process with Solomon Thomas, as much as people want to question the process with Ruben Foster, it's almost the opposite with Solomon Thomas, right? I mean, the most high-character kid you could possibly imagine. Extremely intelligent, extremely well-spoken, um, mm -hmm. terrific background, incredibly hard worker, non-stop motor on the field, non-stop motor off the field. Testing at the combine was through the roof. Size was very good. Obviously, maybe not what you want for an interior guy, but for a guy you were protecting to play on the edge, obviously, you know, to be 6'3", 272 or whatever, and to be able to move like he did, just extremely rare to find that kind of an athlete. Um, you know, like I said, the motor, the physical tools were there. The athletic, athletic tools were there. He obviously had great tape and production. Everything you kind of like want a box to check, he checked. You know, this isn't like a take Jarvis Jones in the first round, even though he ran a 4'9", and he hit... He couldn't, you know, bend the corner of his life, depended on it. it. It wasn't that kind of a move. Certainly there was the idea of, okay, Thomas played inside at, at, at Stanford. We're going to have to move him outside. He was always going to be developmental because you have to teach him some moves and how to win 1v1 on the outside. You know, but to this level of not really having got it at all, 
in his second season. You know, and I think Solomon Thomas actually he's a fine run defender. It just run defender doesn't doesn't really matter in today's NFL. You got to get sacks. You got to get pressure. You got to mm-hmm. be on the field on third downs and on big pass rush situations. You know, those are the guys who are valuable. Those are the guys you're paying for. You're drafting high, and he hasn't been that kind of a guy. And so, will he get better next year? Yes, because he's had things happen in his personal life that we all know about uh, that uh, have I think contributed to what you're seeing now. Um, I think he is really battling. And I think that that part of it maybe doesn't get seen by the fans, but mm-hmm. that can really yeah. that can really factor in here. I think I think you'll see a better player next year. I've always said Solomon Thomas can really be because of that move to the outside and just how much you have to kind of learn how to use your hips and and get your hips and your feet in line with the pocket in a in a turning the corner fashion where you're always doing it in kind of a linear fashion because you were more in line with the quarterback before. That's a process that takes some time. Um, I thought he'd be a little bit further ahead this year in that capacity. He hasn't been. Uh, but I do think by next season you'll see a better player, especially if they hold on to that number one pick and draft Nick Bosa. I think you'll see a player that really they those two kind of challenge each other. Right now there's nobody really like that on the roster. I think you'll see those two challenge each other. Um, and, and the attention that Bosa is going to get will help open things up a little more for a player like Solomon Thomas, who actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the Melvin Ingram, Joey Bosa in, in, with the Chargers in terms of Melvin Ingram was, always, it was a good player, certainly more polished than Solomon Thomas, but he also was kind of a bull in a china shop. And then Joey Bosa got there and attracted more attention. And Melvin started to polish up his game a little bit, but also just be able to get home more. He was in one of the one situations he was not the guy that teams had to worry about as much anymore, as good a player as he is. So I think there could be some of that effect uh, when you when Solomon Thomas takes the field next season. I think you'll see a better player. Will he ever be number you know number three overall pick type of worthy? I I don't think you're going to see that with him. Um, like I said, better, but that's a pretty high pedestal, and he may never live up to that. But I do think he'll end up having a nice career in the NFL. I just feel like Solomon Thomas is one of those guys that they're kind of miscasting. I feel like he's better inside. Like he came on our show at, shortly after he was drafted and he mentioned how he played about 85% of his snaps inside at Stanford. And now they're trying to, they try to move him to the outside. And I think he's taking more snaps inside now, but he just reminds me of it. Just, I, I just hope to get the same sort of effect that the old Minnesota Vikings did with, with John Randall and Henry Thomas inside mm-hmm. where you could get with uh, Buckner and, and Solomon Thomas. I mean, can they, can they get that same sort of effect out of moving Solomon Thomas inside? I have my doubts about it. Uh, not that they're in certain situations he can win inside for sure. You know, long and laid down, if they had any type of edge presence, I'd love to kick them inside. I mean, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they need to be active, obviously, in acquiring edge defender talent, which, like I said, no matter where you line them up, is going to help him. But, you know, I'd love him inside on those passing downs. But even at Stanford, one of his main concerns was on the inside, double teams and even a lot of base blocks would really uproot him and mm-hmm. drive him out of those interior gaps. So he's just it's too much of a liability in run defense for him to stay there on every down. And in today's NFL, every down is kind of a passing down. It could be at least for the offense. So you become predictable if he's on the field. Teams will change what they're doing and kind of run at him, I think. And that's where the, the struggle becomes you know, very real for San Francisco in terms of, okay, where would we put this guy? Because he can't really play rundowns on the inside. And, and he's too easy to scheme against on the inside every down. But at the same time, he's not winning 1v1 on the outside either. So I definitely have always been in favor of playing Solomon Thomas some on the inside uh, because I do think he can win there and gain some confidence there. But I don't know that it can ever be an every down thing because you know he was 270-something. He was pretty maxed out, not in a bad way, just 
you know, I don't know that you were adding a lot of weight to his frame uh, from where he was in college. And I think the reality is that there were enough issues there in college that kind of scared them away from wanting to put him there. And, and I do appreciate the commitment to keeping him outside because that's, you know, eventually you'd like to see him thrive there. And that could be where he eventually, you know, finds success if they can develop him there. But that can't happen unless he's getting reps there, including in-game reps there. So I admire the commitment to kind of trying to develop him in that spot. But I do think that it's not a bad thing now that he's seen some time there and he kind of knows what to expect there and, you know, to get him inside as well some and see if you can get him some confidence by letting him make an impact in there. Now, jumping into free agency, the first thing you said, John, was do not even look at at Le'Veon Bell, not even his direction. And I agree with that. And I actually wrote an article last offseason that the Niners should stay away from him. Given the money the team spent on McKinnon, Shanahan's ability to find running backs, and even just Bell getting older, it would be crazy to even entertain the idea of the 49ers bringing in Bell, right? Oh, it would be absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I know they have money, but I know, and I know for some reason the 49ers are still a team mentioned in relation to him. So I really only address that because I know it gets talked about, uh, national media. They've, I've seen it mentioned on Twitter by multiple people. There's just no way I'll be floored if, if Shanahan, I mean, not that he doesn't think Bell's a good player, but he doesn't fit his scheme at all. You know, Shanahan loves to run outside zone fast. I've talked to Mitchell Schwartz about this, the Chiefs right tackle. And he said, the, the craziest thing about playing for Cal Shanahan was how fast you had to run outside zone. Like he wanted the backs to be so decisive. You know, it was a big reason what Kareem Hunt at the, at, at one point last season, you know, the Chiefs run uh, outside zone similar to how Shanahan teaches it. Um, and is, is kind of what I'm getting at here. But Hunt wasn't running it fast enough, which is why it wasn't working because the other guys were used, they had played for Shanahan or they had learned it under Shanahan's system. And so they were kind of, you know, trying to say, uh, okay, we got to run this at, at full speed. And so, you know, for Le'Veon Bell, that's just not his style at all. Like the guy likes to sit behind a lot of scrimmage, pick his spot. He's very unique style. I think the Steelers adapted really well to his style, but it took two years probably. Um, and I think that, you know, it ended up working out great. But, and they also have one of the best offensive line coaches in the league, and that really helped that process. But it just, the reality is that that's not going to work for every type of scheme. The Steelers almost never run outside zone. Cal Shannon loves outside zone. That's his baby. So it's just, uh, it would be a weird fit. Obviously, as a receiver, he'd help any team, but you have McKinnon, you have Breda. They could both contribute in that way. Shanahan's never needed to pay a back. You know, they, what they got Devontae Freeman in the fourth round, Tevin Coleman, wherever. Both of them were good there. I mean, Atlanta's third string running back would come in half the time and be successful. All that Ward kid, Tron Ward. And, you know, they, they just have never, it's never been an issue uh, for him in terms of getting production out of running backs. It's not an issue right now. Matt Brady's going off. You know, he's averaging like six yards a carry. So they, just to spend money on that position, for San Francisco is the last thing in the world that they need to do. You know, the whole reason of bringing in Cal Shannon is because he gets production out of guys like that without you having to spend money uh, on the position. Look at right guard, look at, or, you know, I know person's playing well, but you know, look at maybe one of the guard spots uh, if you don't think that can continue with him. Uh, but or look at wide receiver, especially look on defense. You know, spend all your money there. Don't, I mean, I just wouldn't even, don't even entertain the idea of Le'Veon Bell because, while he might add something to the passing game, you, know, you can afford to miss out on that because the other guys are still giving you something there, and he just doesn't fit the run scheme at all. Now, sticking with the theme of free agency, you mentioned three names. Now, this is assuming Demarcus Lawrence isn't available. Either he'll get franchised or re-signed. You mentioned Earl Thomas, KJ Wright, and Sheldon, Sheldon Richardson. Can you kind of talk a little bit about how those three guys would fit in with the 49ers? 
I just think Earl Thomas, you know, I was kind of a lazy guy. Everybody, I mean, everybody in San Francisco wants Earl Thomas, I think. Uh, what is he, 28 or something? You know, I mean, he just, it's it, the scheme he understands. I know some people want to get rid of uh, Robert Soleil, but, you know, let's say that he's there for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, the scheme obviously uh, fits for him, you know, a single high free safety, ball skills, every, every team can use it. I say the scheme, that's probably dumb to even say. It doesn't really even matter. Any team can use Earl Thomas. It's a game changing type of guy. The 49ers can throw money at him. Richard Sherman's there. I think he would be more likely to go somewhere with a coach that he already knew, you know, as long as they have a good relationship, which I would assume they do. Um, you know, he, he loves the game. He's a leader. He's vocal. Uh, I just think that that's the kind of guy they need. They need that type of presence from the back end of their defense. You know, Colbert flashed a little bit and didn't really improve this year, then got hurt. And you definitely can't bank on him, I don't think, for next year. A nice guy to have, certainly on the roster, you know, see what he can become. If Earl were to get hurt again, he's been hurt a couple times, but you don't want to bank on him as a starter for next season. You need, you need ball production. That defense has to get turnovers. They have to find a way to create splash plays. Earl Thomas does that. Um, you know, it's just everything that they kind of need. They, they, the communication issues this year that they've had, you know, the blown coverages and missed assignments and, um, just people not being on the same page. He takes care of that. You know, he, he is coach on the field in that kind of a way. Uh, his ability to communicate and see things pre snap. And, you know, it would make everybody else on the defense so much better. You know, Richard Sherman, everybody's like, oh, he's going to be the new leader of the secondary. That's probably true in some ways in practice but he can't see what a safety can see on the back end of a defense. So it is so important to, to fortify that position for any defense, especially this defense and the issues that they've had. Um, and I think he would make absolutely everybody in front of him better. I just think you got to give him whatever he wants and you got to get him in San Francisco. I think it's that important of a move for that. A player like that doesn't come available that often. I know he's coming off the injury, but I would not assume that there's many lingering effects uh, from a broken leg. We'll see obviously what becomes of that, but um, I think he's done. KJ Wright may be a little bit of a luxury move, but I wonder, you know, Wright's been hurt this year. He doesn't really create splash plays. He's a linebacker who's 30. I just feel like he's going to be affordable. Like, I don't know that many teams are going to want him. Mm -hmm. um, he might be on the market for a while if he asks for a lot of money and doesn't get it right away. I think he's a guy the 49ers could kind of swoop in and say, we'll take you, you know, we'll take you to play a certain percentage of our snaps mm -hmm. uh, next, to, next to Fred Warner and develop with us and, he can cover, he can blitz. He, there's a lot of things he can do. And a high character guy who, you know, all the stuff that ever happened in Seattle, right? All that stuff. Never heard one peep about KJ Wright. He just played his position, played at a high level. I think he's, this is the first year. I think he's missed like three games in his career before this season. Uh, you know, he's never, he's never heard nothing like that. So I just think it's kind of the perfect type of player, you know, for what they need. Uh, I really do believe Fred Warner will benefit from having a solid veteran presence next to him. Um, you guys probably, I don't know if you know or not, but I was a huge Fred Warner fan uh, before the draft. I thought that that was one of the best picks in the draft, and I think he's really played at a high level, but he's got to clean up the tackling. You know, there's certain things, there's technical things about his game he's got to do a little bit better, be a little bit sharper on, and I think a guy like Wright can really help that process happen for him. And, and so just finding, you know, those kind of veteran presence I think are huge. And then, you know, Sean Richardson, definitely a luxury type of move. They have some decent depth on the defensive line. I think it can be better. I think you can never have enough bodies in that capacity in terms of finding guys in the D-line. You know, I wrote that, and then, like, two days later, Sean Richardson went off and had, like, two and a half sacks or something in the next game. He had, like, one sack on the year. And so everybody's like, man, he's getting paid. And so maybe it's true. Maybe he wants to go back, and, and Minnesota throws money at him. And, you know, that's very possible. And I wouldn't get in a bidding war with him, I think. But, you know, if he hits the market like he did last year and 
nobody's signing him for whatever reason. You know, and it's been that's been kind of what the market's like for him. He just hasn't had any big offers. If that continues to be the case, and yeah, see what's out there. Get him on your team because he's played at a really high level uh, the last couple seasons. I think he's, I think he's won one of the better D tackles in the game. Just the sack production's been kind of down a little bit, so he's not getting money thrown in him. But I think he's a really good player that helps your football team. It's a veteran presence on a defensive line with a ton of young guys. Uh, I think it could be really beneficial, and he plays all over. He plays multiple techniques. He would understand and fit the scheme well, so um, I think he could be a real nice presence for them as well. And John, before we let you go, everyone's assuming right now that the Niners get the number one pick, and obviously that pick would be Nick Bosa, knowing their pass rushing issues. But if they win a game or two and end up, they'll probably still end up in the top five. But if they do drop down a little bit into three and four, do you think they go pass rusher no matter what? Or is there another player position that you could see them maybe jumping for and adjusting pass rush later if they do drop out of that one first overall spot? I mean, you can't really rule out other positions, I don't think, depending on how low they are. Um, but there's a lot of good pass rushers. If they're not at number one, I think you really got to think about trading down um, at that point because you can probably find another good pass rusher maybe a little bit later and get a couple extra picks. Um, you know, they they don't really need somebody like Jonah Williams. Somebody else might. They don't need a quarterback. Somebody else might. Um, so I think you're in a position where you're the 49ers to kind of hold something hostage uh, if you're if you're picking not at number one. If you're picking a number one, man, like just fill some needs in free agency and take Nick Bosa. Don't mess yeah. around. Like, don't try and trade down. I mean, always hear offers for sure. You know, if somebody's going to offer you the next three first round picks, maybe you got to think about it, you know, or whatever. But um, I just, it'd be hard for me to move out of that spot. Knowing what they need as badly as they need Nick Bosa, if they can get some of those other things in free agency. So I just think this could be a, a really a transformed defense and team by next season. But if you're at three or four, I mean, Deontay Thompson from Alabama, again, if you're not, getting Earl Thomas in free agency. He's a difference-making safety on the back end uh, that I would like to see him see. But again, you're adding a young guy to a secondary that has a lot of young guys uh, that I think really just would benefit a ton from a veteran safety. So you know, he'd be one name I'd consider. Uh, I would move down for a corner, maybe move down for another edge rusher, um, and, and that would be kind of my priority for them. And obviously, I think some of the wide receivers are on the table, but again, I think that they'd be better served in terms of value find your pass rusher early on and take one of the receivers in, in the second round or third round, because I think there's still going to be a good amount of receivers that are really talented on the board in that range. John, this was great. We really appreciate the time and let's do this again during the draft. What do you say? Absolutely. That sounds great, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks again to John for coming on the show. Great job by him. And before we get going, I wanted to say, Again, the QBSneak.com, who has um, sponsored our shows and, and will be doing so for the next couple of weeks. Over the last two years now, the QB Sneak's weekly predictions have been over 60% correct. For accurate predictions on the NFL and thought-provoking NFL content that can help your fantasy teams, confidence pools, or any help you need in arguing with your friends over who's the GOAT, head to www.thecubysneak.com. All right, Zane. Like we alluded to in the opening, this Reuben Foster thing, just absolutely just a mess. And you look at just the past with Foster and what we've seen. And, and you and I jumped on him before with, when he was accused of domestic violence and we were wrong. Mm-hmm. He was proved innocent and he didn't do it. And you and I kind of jumped the gun and we, you know, we apologize for that and can't do that type of thing. And you know, I, I don't, we don't even know what happened here. This is the same woman. We, we, we don't know if, if it's the same situation where she's making it up again, but what we've seen with Foster now 
is just a history of making bad decisions and putting himself in, in bad places. And Kyle Shanahan spoke very honestly about this. Did you see the, did you see the press conference that he gave? It was the most transparent and honest press conference I've ever seen a head coach make. Or he was did. so, so honest. You could tell the frustration. You could tell that he cared about him, but you could also tell that he was at the end of his rope. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is this girl doing at the team hotel? Mm-hmm. Just, just bad decision after bad decision. And, to me, I, I just look at this in a couple ways. You know, I look at it in the sense where, okay, he was a first-round pick, right? The Niners used a first-round pick on him. And a year and a half later, he plays 16 out of 26 games, and he's gone. He was supposed to be the cornerstone of this defense for the next 10 years. A blue-chip linebacker that, remember we talked about it, just plug-and-play. Plug and play. You got a pro bowler for the next 10 years and he's gone just like that. And, and we know he's, he's, it's, he hasn't been the same this season. There's been some, some injury issues and Michael Wilhoy. I don't know if you saw this, um, he gave an interview and I forget, I forget where it was, but he was talking about foster playing and how undisciplined he was and how he just kind of said, okay, here's the ball. I'm going to go to the ball and didn't really understand his responsibilities. And, and so he, he didn't play this year the way that he did last year, but still the talent was there. And to see him just go like that, just snap of the fingers, boom, you have this guy that you're counting on for the next eight to 10 years. And now that's it. And now you need to fill this position again. Yeah. Ruben Foster had more missed tackles in the short amount of time that he played this year than all of last year. He just wasn't, he just wasn't right. I think the shoulder was bothering him, but let's be honest, Al, it's the pattern of bad decision-making that really was sealing his fate here in San Francisco. How can you associate with the same woman that has basically almost brought you down? He's already been suspended this year. That's, that's the crazy thing. He was already suspended this year, not because of the domestic violence thing. I believe it was the gun charge because the, the domestic violence charges were dropped eventually, right? It was the gun charge. You've already been suspended this year. And on top of that, there was another incident in October that the team did not know about that just came out from the Santa Clara County Police Department. They released a statement saying that there was they were called to the residence where she was living with him still, and there was some sort of altercation that they had that they had to break up. I'm not sure what the nature of it was, but there was another incident that went unreported previously to the team. So the team really, like, I, I, they had no choice. What do you do with a guy like that that just doesn't want to be part of what you're trying to build? Like, he doesn't buy into what you're trying to build. Their whole thing, if you look, if you watch the post-game locker room videos and things like that, what's the last thing that Kyle Shanahan says to the team? He says, protect the team. And what he says, what he means by that is that you have a responsibility to this team to be a representative of this team and hold yourself to a higher standard of behavior, even when you're not with the rest of the team. I mean, how do you get stopped at the how do you get the cops calling you at the team hotel? I can't believe it. <laughs> Unbelievable. You're at the hotel to stay away from trouble. You're at the hotel to stay away from all of the bad stuff that could get you off the field and suspended. Yet he still was able to somehow get past all of that and, and screw up again. Like I just, again, I don't know what, what happened this time. And frankly, I don't care because there was a certain set of rules that he had that he didn't follow. Like, Al, why is it one guy? Like there are 63 guys on the team counting the practice squad guys. Why is it you that keeps messing up? Why is it you that keeps getting suspended? Why is it you that keeps getting the cops called on you? Anybody else could be having an issue, but it's you that continuously has that issue. They had him room with veterans on the road and put put his locker between veterans' lockers. They had people checking up on him literally every day. 
Kyle Shanahan used to send an assistant to go to Ruben Foster's house every single day to check up on him, spend time with him. They could not have done anything else to help this guy. And for me, it's like, you know what? It's such a waste of talent. And I, I feel for the guy as well because of the upbringing and the way that he was, he was raised and things like that. Like he had a really tough life before this, but you have to realize that you were given a gift of athleticism to take yourself up out of that, to, to, to bring yourself up out of this dark cloud that was surrounding your life as, as a child and as a young adult. And he just, th- those things just keep following him. Every single red flag that he had before the draft followed him into the NFL, every single one. And that's the exact reason why John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan waited so late to draft him. That's why every other team passed on him because they knew that this kid was troubled. He had, he had problems at the combine before he was even drafted. And granted, like we were making excuses for him. Like, Oh, like maybe some people don't like the MRI machine or whatever, because it's like close quarters or whatever happened. Right. Maybe he just got into an altercation just because he was having a bad day, whatever it was. We kept making excuses for this kid. He had the draft party sponsored by the vaping company that also, also has uh, apparently like a marijuana dispensary or something like that. Right. It's just the the pattern of bad decision-making never got better. And the fact that you are getting paid millions of dollars and your team is counting on you and you're still making these boneheaded mistakes says to me that you're not taking it seriously. And Al, I don't know if you saw when he left the jail. So Ruben Foster was cut while he was in jail, basically. And he had to fly home on his own. We don't even know how he got home, right? Like he basically had to, had to pay his own way home because the team did not take him home. When he got out of jail the next day, they had video cameras on him. He didn't say a word. He had, he had a hoodie on, put his hood over his head. And raise his fist up in the air. Like, are you kidding me, man? You're like raising your fist up in the air as if this is some sort of big triumph that you got out of jail, dude. Like you lost your job. You lost your job in the NFL. Now, granted, the Washington Redskins were stupid enough to give him another job, and we'll get I'll get to that in a second. But I can't believe that that he didn't change. I can't believe that usually you see guys that they that they eventually they turn a new leaf and they're able to understand. They're, they're able to realize that opportunity before him. He did not take this opportunity seriously. He took it for granted and he paid the price and he's going to be suspended for some amount of time by the NFL. But I mean, even the Washington Redskins, like they, they acknowledge that he's going to be suspended. It was a terrible move in my, in my opinion for them to pick him up, but he's going to be suspended either for a long time or indefinitely for this. And he absolutely deserves it. The Redskins just look awful here to me. And I don't know if this is Dan Snyder because he can't stand the Shanahan's. I don't know mm-hmm. if this is Dan Snyder just trying to stick it to Shanahan. I don't know. I don't know if the Redskins just see, hey, this is somebody that can really help us next season and let's swoop in and get him. But it's just an awful look. I mean, we don't even know what happened here yet. We don't even know what happened. So I guess maybe they're thinking, well, if nothing happens, great. But but what if he did do something? What what if, what if there was domestic violence involved? You're, you're just going to swoop in and get get him? I just thought it was a bad look and, and maybe the commissioner's office just, just should have came in and I think they could have maybe put him on the exempt list or something like that. Just to take this out. It's such a bad look for the NFL. With all, all this garbage they've had with the domestic violence. It's he's bad look for the NFL. He's on the commissioner's list. He is? Yeah, he's, he's on that list right now. Yep. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but it's just a bad look for the NFL. It's, it's a bad look for the Redskins. It's just ridiculous and, and you hate to keep going around and around with this stuff but Ruben Foster's had a tough upbringing he's a troubled guy I guess I hope he gets the help he needs I I, I guess I mean I don't, I don't even know what to say at the point he's not the 49ers problem anymore now he's the Redskins problem I, I just thought it was just a classless move by the Redskins to 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 pick him up I agree I agree and for us a, a company like 
say what you want about the the name and everything and the the meaning behind Redskins and stuff like that and how they will not change their name. And some people think it's a big deal. Some people don't. And the move that the Washington Redskins made, it sends a message to your team. It sends a message to your fan base. It sends a message to the rest of the NFL that we don't care about whether a guy was arrested or what baggage he brings or what, what character concerns we have for him. We don't care if there's serious allegations, if he hit somebody, if whatever it is. Like, I mean, it's such a poor message to send because what it, what the NFL is suffering from right now is an image crisis right now. And they need less of that and more positive things coming out. And I think that it doesn't help the league. It doesn't help other players who have issues because really honestly, I like what it comes down to is that they need to be able to rehabilitate themselves and be better people and be better human beings. Right. And when you see guys like Ruben Foster getting signed, not even 72 hours after he was cut by another, by another team, with these domestic violence allegations already there and a league suspension looming, it really shows people that, Hey, I can still mess up and they'll give me another shot. And it's basically cheating. the You're cheating the fans. You're cheating the organization, you're cheating the fans out of their money because there are people, there are kids that look up to this guy. There are people that buy this, buy this guy's Jersey. There are people that really want this guy to succeed. And he's letting all of those people down. He let every single one of those people down. And I get it. Like these people, oh yeah, these people choose to follow whoever they want to follow. But at the same same time, man, like people are spending their hard earned money on Ruben Foster jerseys, or they were at one point. They're spending their hard earned money to see the 49ers. At one point, we were talking last year, like, oh, Ruben Foster is the most exciting thing on the 49ers before Jimmy G got here. So really, it just comes down to the Redskins making a really stupid decision, in my opinion, and supporting a guy that frankly should not be supported by an NFL franchise. Like he needs help. He doesn't need to be signed by another NFL team. Now, since all this has gone down, John Lynch has been taking a lot of heat. Not just for this, but for the decisions he's made. And, and I guess we really don't know how much say Lynch has versus Shanahan in the roster. I, I, I would be of the belief this is kind of Kyle Shanahan's team. And Kyle Shanahan definitely has a lot of input on the roster. But Lynch is taking a lot of heat right now. And listen, in hindsight, in hindsight, it probably would have made more sense to pair not probably it would have to pair Shanahan with an experienced front office guy. It doesn't have to be experienced GM, but just somebody who has been in NFL front office. I'll use those Packers guy, Elliot Wolf. And it was a uh, Brian Gunt. I just his last name, Gunt Costa, whatever his last name is for the, that were both with the Packers at the time. Maybe somebody like that, that might've been a better way to go. Definitely an experienced defensive coordinator, but what you have are three rookies, basically rookie general manager, rookie head coach, rookie defensive coordinator, and, and there's been some issues because of that. But like I said, Lynch is the one taking a lot of the heat right now. When they drafted Reuben Foster, John Lynch said, I would anticipate people maybe questioning some of his character, but I will tell you his character is what drew us to him. Mm-hmm. When you start talking football with this young man, he lights up a room and he's a good kid. I believe in the kid. He'll be a great player for this organization for a long time. That looks really bad now. <laughs> yeah. When you go back and read that, mm-hmm. it, it does. And, and Lynch, you could look at this a couple of ways. You could say, well, Lynch and Shanahan, both of them, took a risk. They jumped in and they took a real talented player and they traded up and I applaud them. It didn't work out. What are you going to do? Sure, you can look at it that way. You could also look and say, these guys wasted a pick. They couldn't afford to make a move like that. This team needed players. This team needed to have guys that are going to be around. They're rebuilding. They couldn't afford to take. That's a luxury pick. You couldn't afford to do that. You can look at it that way. And now, let's look at this 2017 
drafts, Zane, all of a sudden this this had to be this was the first draft, right? This was the the draft where you start the rebuild. Mm-hmm. You, and what they're gonna end up doing is redrafting a lot of these positions. Solomon Thomas, I still think he's gonna be a decent player. I do. He's your first pick. They draft him to be an edge rusher. He's not that. Now you need to draft an edge rusher. Ruben Foster in the first round. Now you need an inside linebacker. Mm-hmm. Witherspoon's been struggling. I still think he can be salvageable. I still think he can be a starter, but they probably need another cor- cornerback. Then you look at CJ Beathard. They traded up to get him. They traded up. Now, I don't believe for any second they thought he was going to be the answer at quarterback, but they got him. You can never have enough good QBs, right? So they got him to, I believe, be a solid backup, somebody they could develop who would be insurance if your starter went down for a long period of time. And he just got replaced by an undrafted free agent. So that's not working out. Joe Williams gets cut. I think Trent Taylor's hurt this year, so it's really tough to judge him. He had a good rookie season. His back's been bugging him. Shanahan even alluded to that this week. He needs Jimmy. Trent Taylor needs Jimmy. He needs Jimmy, and I think he needs to be healthy. He's tough to really pile on right now. He's not 100%. Mm-hmm. Kittle was great. DJ Jones is developing. And then, you know, six, you know, Pita, Talapainu, a six-round pick. What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, they don't really work out all the time. And Colbert, you know, for a seventh-round pick, if he ends up being a backup, I guess it's okay. But that draft now, all of a sudden, we we were really hot. Everybody was high on it going into the season, and now it doesn't look so good, does it? No, it doesn't. And we talked about Trent Taylor, obviously. He he was the product of Jimmy Garoppolo coming here and taking the reins and that big winning streak last year, and he became a really good safety outlet for Jimmy. And I think that once Jimmy gets back, Trent, Trent Taylor will you'll see the, the increase in production again. But the other guys, man, the first round is just looking so bad right now. and. I feel like John Lynch because he's a former player and uh, as an athlete myself and a former athlete myself, like we, when I was playing, you go off of your gut a lot. You don't really think because if you ever think about like when athletes are quote unquote in the zone, they're not really thinking it's just muscle memory. Like when Steph Curry is hitting like 13 threes in a game, like he's just, he's just shooting. He's not thinking about it. He's chucking up shots and they're going in. Right. So it's just one of those things where when athletes playing at a high level, they're not really thinking about it because then you get too mechanical and then you mess up. And I feel like John Lynch kind of took some of that into being a GM. And that's not always the best way to go because he, he went with his gut when he should have went with his head. And I really think that both picks in the first round were gut picks. They weren't like, oh, this, this player will be the best player for us because of these reasons. It's like, oh no, I have a feeling that this guy will be a great player. He did the same thing with Solomon Thomas because he had a history with him at Stanford. And obviously, Ruben Foster was a total gut pick because he put his reputation on the line. He traded up to get him, and they had a feeling that he would he would pan out, and he never did. And I feel like when you're rebuilding a team, you can't have that many gut picks. You have to have picks that have some sort of data behind them or some sort of science behind them and say that, hey, this guy's going to fit into our scheme this way and going to be able to do this for us. Like with Solomon Thomas, like they don't really know what he did. And obviously... We just talked to John about Solomon Thomas in depth and the issues that he's dealing with, and hopefully he can overcome that, become a good player for the 49ers. But at the outset, they really didn't have a place for him. And with Ruben Foster, it's like, okay, well, you drafted this immense talent, but he had all these red flags, and you could have gone with a safer pick that could have been just as talented for you. So it's just one of those things. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And all of the other picks that you mentioned, Witherspoon and Colbert, and and obviously Trent Taylor we talked about they all looked better last year for whatever reason they looked better last year. Joe Williams is gone. That was kind of a reach pick. They should have never drafted him. That was a Kyle Shanahan pick again, a gut pick by Kyle Shanahan. But I'm not really going to knock him because he knows how to evaluate running backs, and they ended up signing Matt Breida as an undrafted free agent. So I'm really not out. Yeah, yep. 
Yeah, so I'm not, that's kind of a wash for me, right? So I'm not really going to knock that pick. But really, when it comes down to it, it's too early to evaluate that draft class. But I'm with you. It just it just when you don't play well and when you don't have the results to show and when you have regressed as they have from last year to this year, you come under that scrutiny. And some of it's is some of it is actually justified, but a lot of it is more just people that are frustrated about the fact that they're not really progressing at the the rate that they would. For me, I'm more upset about the whole free agency thing. And I do want to address some of John's comments on free agency with the the three players coming from the Seahawks system. And we'll do that in a bit. But really what it comes down to, Al, is that they need to be able to draft better. Like they're playing Seattle this week. And what has Seattle done to stay competitive? A, they've they've kept Russell Wilson. Yes, it helps to have a quarterback who is a really good quarterback in this league. And Pete Carroll's a good coach. But they've really kind of drafted well in the later rounds of the draft. And they've got these undrafted free agents that they bring in that fit their scheme. And while they haven't done much in the first part of the draft because they keep trading away their first round draft picks for other players, they really are able to like drafts or sorry, rounds three through like seven or three through six or three through undrafted. Like they are able to win that every single year. And that's why since 2011 basically is when their rebuild started, they've been able to be competitive all the way through and been one of the better teams in the league. And the 49ers need to follow that blueprint. And unless they start drafting better, they will not be able to do that. And what it comes down to is that if Nick Bosa is there at number one overall, you need to make that pick. If, if he is there and you pass on him, you deserve every single bit of scrutiny that you get. Or if he is there and you trade back and you don't get an edge rusher and you draft something like I've seen a, a mock draft drafting an offensive lineman. If you do that, then you absolutely deserve every bit of scrutiny that you get. This draft, you only have five picks. You have to be smart with them. You can't make gut picks in this draft. Every single one of those picks has to fill a hole. Like they drafted Contavious Street this past draft. He had a torn ACL. You don't need to do that. You can't, you can't afford to do that. You have to have a good draft this year. And to me, John Lynch, if he does not have a good draft this, this year, then he's, not, he's probably going to be on the hot seat. And I mentioned earlier some numbers I had with the draft. If you go back to 2013, okay, the 49ers have had 23 picks in the first three rounds. 15 of them have been on defense. 15. And where is this defense right now? Yeah. Where has this defense been? Not not very good. And that's frustrating. You're just redrafting the same positions over and over again. And you say, okay, well, some of those were, were bulky picks. Okay, well, five of the last eight picks in rounds one through three were defense for, from, from Lynch and Shanahan. Mm-hmm. And, and it still doesn't seem like they have answers there. And, and let's go back and look at some of these names. 2013, Eric Reed in the first round. Okay. I, I mean, Reed was, I thought Reed was a good pick. He, he had a pretty good career for the Niners. We didn't resign him. There might've been other issues there, but I don't think Reed was a bad pick. Then you have Tank Carradine and Corey Lemonnier. Oh man. Jimmy Ward, the next season, 2014 first round pick. Ward just put, got put on IR. His 49er career is over. He played 51 out of 80 games. For this he's team, been, he's ended four out of five seasons on the IR. Yeah, so he ended up fifty-one out of eighty games he played. He made fifteen point seven million dollars and he had two interceptions. Mm-hmm. That was the first round pick that they got out of him that year. Chris Borland retired. I mean, okay, you say that's bad luck. <laughs> Still a wasted third round pick. Next season, two thousand fifteen, they take Eric Armstead in the first round. He's a good player. He's not anywhere near the impactful guy you'd want in the first round. Jaquaski Tart. He's okay. Is he really a, an impact second rounder? I don't think so. Eli Harold, no, he's gone already. Next season, first round, Buckner. Buckner's been the one gem, really, right? Mm-hmm. Will Redmond in the third round. Awful pick. Yeah. And then we have 
Solomon Thomas, Foster in the first round of 2017, and Witherspoon in the third round. And then in 2018, you have uh, Fred Warner in the third and Tavarius Moore in the third. We like Warner. We don't know what Moore is going to be, but you have all these picks on defense. The point is, other than Buckner, out of 15 picks, you got really one guy who makes an impact. Mm-hmm. I guess you could argue Reed did too. But still, I just feel like you're redrafting the same things over and over and over again. If they had these 15 picks, even if they had on maybe four of them <laughs> out of the 15, mm-hmm. may, may, you know, maybe you, you have some long-term answers. Right now, we, do, we don't know that we have any long-term answers there. And, and that's the frustrating thing. They, they have to draft better. And they, they can't just draft like pretty good guys. Like This guy's okay. Like He's a pretty good player. They need to bring in, we said it before, guys who can wreck the game. Mm-hmm. guys who can force turnovers dude they have five turnovers this season they forced five turnovers that's pathetic they have a negative 17 turnover ratio they have two interceptions and three forced fumbles in 11 games that's atrocious i mean that's so bad they don't have anyone who could change the tide of a game and when you look at a team who's lost four games by four points or less even one turnover in each of those games and you could be talking four or five wins mm-hmm. right it's it's crazy. And like you said, I know you want to talk about free agency. Maybe that's where they need to get some of these impact guys like an Earl Thomas, but I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on free agency about that. They have to, they have to get impact guys for free agency because as we both know, Al, and as most people know, it takes time to develop players for the draft. Like even if they draft Nick Bosa next year, and I, I really hope they do, although the draft class is really stacked with the edge rushers. So they should find somebody. Uh, Montez Sweat is another one. So I think that, they really need to supplement the draft with free agency. And John Lynch was quoted as saying, oh, we need to draft our way out of this. And that really, I I believe I had a rant about that a few weeks ago. And it's not just about the draft. It's about getting the proper free agents to supplement with your draft picks. And Richard Sherman was a great one. That was a really good, that was a really good free agent signing. And to be able to, to bring him in to, to be, a guy that holds that secondary down. Like he, although he did get beat a little bit against Tampa Bay, but throughout the rest of the season, like he's been the best corner in the league. He really has. Nobody's throwing at him. He's getting beat very rarely just over like the last week. We've, we saw Mike Evans beat him a couple times and that. Yeah. You know, oh, he got torched in Tampa Bay. <laughs> he did not have a good game. And Mike Evans is a freak. Like Mike Evans is, is one of the three receivers to start off with at least five, 1000 yard receiving seasons the first five years. So he's an absolute beast, but that being said, the thing is, is that when you don't have a pass rush, it exposes your corners because they have to cover for longer. And when you don't have a safety that can run the scheme, it takes that center fielder away from you. So really, to me, it, what makes the most sense is and I'm not trying to build like the Seattle Seahawks South. I'm not trying to do that. But I think that when you have guys that can that know the scheme and can run the scheme, it makes a world of difference. Because Seattle didn't always have like a fierce pass rush. Yeah, they had Bennett and Averill on the side, but they didn't really like have anybody who had like 18 sacks or 19 sacks. They they had guys that had like eight, nine sacks and Bruce Irvin would have like, I think his career high with Seattle was like eight. So you don't necessarily need a guy who's like a JJ Watt or a D Ford or somebody like that, like a Khalil Mack. You, you need guys that can get to the quarterback often enough that can help your defense. And I hope that Nick Bosa is the guy. I hope that they can get him. But if not, there are plenty of others. Now, with the free agents that you can supplement with that, Earl Thomas is number one on my list. Like you, That should be your number one signing. I, and, and John said that when we talked to him, and I wholeheartedly agree. That should be the guy that you go after because Earl Thomas is, a, is an absolute defense franchise-changing player. He is one of those guys, like a Khalil Mack, the best player in his position. Forget the fact that he got hurt this year. He was still playing at a high level. It's not like Earl Thomas was declining severely and like he got hurt and now he's at the end of his career. No, this guy's in the prime of his career. 
he will command he three interceptions ball. in four games this year. Exactly. And he did, I believe he held out as well, held out of training camp. So he is one of those guys that is at the top of his game. You need as many of those guys as possible on your team because you can't draft those guys. So you have to spend the money. He would be a perfect fit in this scheme. In fact, I think that that saves Robert Sala's job because really Robert Sala is doing what he's doing now. Like I'm thinking up for him now because the last couple of weeks have been critical, but he doesn't have the talent to be able to run his scheme. Like you're running out with Exum out there at safety and DJ Reed, who's a slot corner. And now he's playing free safety because of injuries like this. This is not a way to run a defense, man. Like you can't run your scheme. You have to have the guys available that are talented enough to run your scheme. So Earl Thomas is number one on my list. KJ Wright's another one. Like I don't think that KJ Wright will necessarily end up with the 49ers, but he's a really solid player. Again, as John said, you've never heard of any off-field issues with him. High character guy. He's not a pro bowler, but he's one of those guys like Malcolm Smith was in Seattle, not after Seattle, in Seattle, where he kind of does his job and is always at the right place and is able to execute the scheme properly. And Sheldon Richardson, who's a, who's a really good D tackle. I don't think that they'll necessarily go after him because they've got DeForest Buckner, but I put out a list on Twitter Al, and my key signings this off season, at least I would love for them to at least get uh, two of these guys would be uh, Earl Thomas, number one, and CJ Mosley of the Ravens. He looks like he's probably going to bounce because they, I don't think they'll be able to face the be able to afford him uh, under, under the salary cap. And Tyrell Williams of the of the Chargers. Now he's Philip Rivers' number two receiver now, but he's six foot four. He's been a thousand yard receiver. He's only twenty six years old. He could be that red zone threat that you're looking for, right? And these aren't huge signings. Well, I mean, there are obviously Earl Thomas is and CJ Mosley is one of the better linebackers, but these aren't like, oh, we're bringing in seven new guys to to come in and they're they're all high price free agents. No, you need you can turn this thing around. All you need is. These three players are a combination of two of these players and a good draft, and you can turn it around. You have Jimmy Garoppolo coming back next year healthy. You got Jarek McKinnon coming back next year healthy. You probably need another wide receiver, which is why I said this should get Williams. But really what it comes down to is that you need a couple of really good free agent signings plus a good draft, and, and that, that should take you where you need to go. I don't want the 49ers to go out and just spend money just for the sake of spending money. It's not about spending recklessly. It's about spending, being intelligent with your free agent signings and signing guys that will fit your scheme. Like I feel like with the Malcolm Smith scheme uh, signing, they did overpay for him, but they paid because like, oh, you know what? He comes from the Robert Sala scheme in Seattle. He knows that scheme. So we're going to pay for him to get him here. But things like the Pierre Garcon thing, I, I mean, I feel like they grossly overpaid for him because, and he has not made that impact. And the Jarek McKinnon thing, you can argue that they overpaid because now with the emergence of Matt Breida, I don't want them to, to be doing that every single year, to be overpaying for guys that are role players that may or may not turn out. You need to pay for starters. And the three guys that I mentioned, Mosley, Earl Thomas, Tyra Williams, they're all starters. And you need to get at least two of them here, plus have a good draft. Yeah, that would be an amazing haul. I, I really like Tyrell Williams as well. Like you said, he's he's a big receiver. He's fast. He has a thousand yard season under his belt. Um, he's got seventeen career touchdowns. He's he'd be a great player. And obviously, Earl Thomas would would help transform that defense. If you get a, if you get a pass rusher like Bosa and add Earl Thomas, because look that that high safety position is is critical for that defense. Mm-hmm. So if you can get Earl Thomas in here, I mean that would be huge. And yeah, Mosley's a hell of a player. If they can pull that off, saying yeah, that would be that'd be a great haul. And you did mention Matt Breida when you were talking and he, there's a couple of players I wanted to talk about and Breida is one of them because he just every week, he just is, is amazes me more and more. And if you look at the NFL this season, the most runs of 10 yards or more. Okay. Ezekiel Elliott has 31. Todd Gurley has 29. 
And then Melvin Gordon and Matt Breeder are tied for third with 26. Mm-hmm. And Elliott's got 217 carries. Gurley has 210. Gordon has 153. And Breeder only has 127. What Breed is doing <laughs> on limited touches is amazing. And Matt Breed is averaging 5.8 yards per carry right now. He has 127 carries, okay? That is the highest average of any 49ers running back with at least 125 carries since you got to go back to Joe Perry in 1958. Wow. That's that's what he's doing. And he's on pace for 1,100 yards this year, Matt Breida, okay? That's more yards than Carlos Hyde ever had in a season. Carlos mm-hmm. Hyde never gained 1,000 yards to the 49ers. And that's more than almost double Jarek McKinnon's career high in terms of rushing. And I know people liked McKinnon as a fit in the offense and – in, in out of the out of the backfield catching the ball and stuff like that, but McKinnon never did anything running the ball. He averaged what three point four yards per carry last year or something like that, and and it was under four the year before too. So we don't know what he would have been running the ball. Maybe he would maybe he would be averaging six yards carry right now. I don't know, but we do know what Matt Breida is doing, and it's amazing. And I think worst case scenario next year is a timeshare with him, McKinnon. If McKinnon mm-hmm. comes back healthy, Breida has earned consistent consistently. 10 to 15 touches in this offense every week for the foreseeable future. I, I don't see if there, how there's any way you can't make him your starter next year. I really feel like he's earned it. And you put the tweet out here like Matt Breda, RB1. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree, Al. I think that he's done more than enough to earn that starting slot. He's proven that he can handle the every down workload and be kind of a bell cow back. And we didn't think he could do that because of his, his stature. He's kind of slight in stature. He's a smaller guy. For an NFL running back, but man, he is so quick when he hits the hole. He has such good explosion. I believe he has the fastest time this year, um, r- like running down the field. Like over, it was some stat where he was like running over ten yards, and he has the fastest time, and where he was, or sorry, fastest speed, rate of speed, where he was running over twenty-two miles an hour, I believe, and um, for for like a ten-yard sort of stretch. And to me, that just shows how explosive this guy is. And he's becoming accomplished as a pass catcher. He hasn't dropped a pass yet this year. Although last year, you know, we, we look at what he did and he led all, I think he led all running backs and drops last year with his short, uh, with his short stint. And this year he's, he's cleaned it up and he's totally turned a corner. And he's one of those guys that the 49ers can really build around in the future. I really feel confident in the running back position now because Matt Breed has shown what he's shown. And I really think that, McKinnon is the higher prize veteran, but I really feel like Matt Breida is probably actually the better running back right now. And for McKinnon, it's like you're now looking at him as the RB2 third down sort of back, which which is not great for a guy that they paid so much money to. And I really hope they don't just start McKinnon just because they paid him. I really hope that Matt Breida gets a chance to play as RB1 next year. And if he struggles, then, then let McKinnon get some carries. I really hope that it's not one of those situations like, oh, just because McKinnon was a free agent signing and he was expensive, we should give him a shot. It should be the guys that give you the best, the best shot on the field. It should be the guys that are producing on the field. And Matt Breida, like you said, he's on pace for 1,100 yards, and I want him to get 1,000 yards. It's a big milestone for a running back. And for a guy like Matt Breida, who's an undrafted free agent, like as much heat as John Lynch and Shanahan and Adam Peters take for all the drafting and things like that, and lack of lack of activity on the free agent market, they did bring Matt Breida in, who's been phenomenal, who's been arguably the best player on the 49ers offense this year, if you if you want to talk about him and Kittle. So for me, like I'm excited to see what he has. He had he had another hundred yards against Tampa Bay. Um and he's one of those guys that is turning into a home run threat. And they don't have too many of those guys on the team. 
No, and, and the other guy I want to talk about, and I guess that can lead us into a little bit of this, as much as you want to relive this Buccaneers game. I don't know how much you really want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it very much. <laughs> but um, the second guy that I wanted to talk about was Dante Pettis, who, like I said, was coming off his, his best game as a pro for sure. And one thing I thought was very important towards this home stretch of the season was the Niners getting Pettis involved a lot. Get him the ball, regardless of what he does with it. Get him the ball, and he's had 13 targets the last two weeks. And uh, week was it? I, we where are we? Week 12. So it was week 10 against the Giants. He he had um, six targets. He caught four balls, only for 12 yards. You know, he caught those bubble screens. Didn't really do much with them. But this week he comes out. They target him seven times. He has four catches for 77 yards and a touchdown. Might have had more. You know, Mullins didn't have a good game. He had pressure and he wasn't particularly accurate. But Pettis has has a great game and. Look, it's it's very difficult in the NFL to come in and make an impact as a receiver in, in year one. Not everybody's Juju Smith Schuster. You know, it doesn't it doesn't happen. It takes guys time and especially in a system like Kyle Shanahan, it's a complicated system. It's gonna take guys time to come in and figure it out. Some guys will get it faster than others, but Pettis does do things once in a while that make me wonder about his football IQ. Um, but again, that could just be the fact that he's a rookie. Uh, rookies are going to look like rookies. So if he's doing the same things in year two and three, we'll worry about it. But as for right now, you got to consider he's a rookie. But listen, if you're a 49ers fan, you have to be incredibly excited about what you saw out of him in week 12. And, and John Ledyard said a lot of great things about him. He was probably the most complimentary of Pettis out of anyone that we've talked to and thinks he could really be a big-time player for the Niners. And if the Niners do go out and get a big receiver to go along with Goodwin and Pettis, Pettis can be a guy that can win some matchups and put up numbers for him if he keeps his progression. So hopefully week 12 will just tip the iceberg and, and this continues. Yeah. Dante Pettis is one of those guys that they traded up for in the draft. And because of that, I really feel unfairly out. Like they, they people unfairly start to target a guy because they're like, Oh, well he was, they traded up to get him and they gave up this to get him. I mean, all that stuff is hindsight, right? To me, it's like, if you have a guy that you really want and you feel like he can be a scheme fit and you feel very confidently that this will be a franchise changing player or a very, very good player for you. Go up and get that player. Like I'm not, I don't really care that they gave up a draft pick to trade up to get Dante Pettis. If he's getting a thousand yards a year, I really don't. And he's obviously a long ways away from that, but rookie receivers take a long time to develop. Like some of these guys, like it'll take them two, three years to really hit their stride. And Dante Pettis seems like one of those late bloomer type of guys that may with more repetitions become, become better it's really hard when you can't stay on the field and and he was hurt during punt returns and things like that. And I think that they realized that he can either be a punt returner or a receiver. And they eventually put Richie James back there returning punts and they let Dante Pettis focus solely on being a receiver. I feel like since they made that change, he's been a little bit better and a little bit more attentive to route running, things like that. There were a couple of clips on Twitter that I saw where he beat his guy and he beat his man totally over the middle and and the ball didn't come to him because Nick Mullins got sacked or he threw it somewhere else because he didn't make the right read. But I really feel like once Jimmy gets in there, you'll see a much different sort of Dante Pettis. He looked he looked pretty good in the first game against against Minnesota. He had that long reception and uh, Jimmy was able to find him on the long crossing route. I feel like when you get a guy who has the sort of vision that Jimmy Garoppolo does, a lot of these receivers get better and Dante Pettis is going to be another one of those guys that's going to benefit from Jimmy being there. So I'm excited to see what he does. He had his second touchdown catch of the season. He had the, the 77 yards receiving on four catches, which is a great average. And I think that he'll be one of those guys that you don't necessarily need to be a really fast guy or a really big guy. Like you remember Isaac Bruce, Al, and his mm-hmm. stat. He was a really fast guy or a really big guy, but he was able to execute route running to a T. And he was able to beat guys over the middle and run crossing routes 
for his entire career, and he made a career out of that. So I think that Dante Pettis can have that similar sort of impact, not necessarily be a Hall of Famer, but have that similar sort of impact where he has a niche, but he can do it really well and better than anybody else. I'm really excited to see that. And Pettis is going to get my game ball this week. Brita was deserving as well, but I'm going to give it to Pettis just because it is such a huge step forward for him in, 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 a, in a great sign for the 49ers in a game where they scored nine points against a defense that's given up 30 points or more in seven out of their previous 10 games. It was just really bad. I don't know if the Ruben Foster situation kind of took the air out of them, but coming off a bye uh, against one of the worst defenses in the league, I mean, Tampa Bay can put up points, mm-hmm. but they also threw, they had 23 interceptions thrown coming into this game. And of course the Niners don't get any interceptions and the Bucks only had they had thrown 23 interceptions, so they intercepted one pass coming into this game. They don't throw an interception, and they end up intercepting McMullins twice. It just was just bad all the way around, every way you look at it. I guess the run defense played well. The 49ers ran the ball well, and you had Pettis. The only thing that I kind of want to complain, well, two things I want to complain about, I guess. One, that pass interference call on Akil Witherspoon was the worst call I've ever seen in my life. Oh, Poor guy, can't catch a break this season. Yeah. And the other one was when the Niners had to settle for a field goal when they ran the ball twice on second down and third down from the one yard line. And then Kittle had the false start or whoever the false starts daily. I think the whole line false started, but they scored twice. <laughs> I thought they broke the plane twice on that mm-hmm. in the second one, the Mullins, you couldn't tell. So I understand why I didn't say it, but I thought Brita broke the plane too. And I thought you could tell with them. So I don't know. That was a little frustrating. Those two plays, but they wouldn't have mattered. The Niners had nothing. They showed up with nothing. And, it was an awful game, but I'll, I'll give Pettis my game ball and, and just hope the next week is a little bit better. Yeah, they call Witherspoon was awful. That was terrible. Awful. Like, he's had a bad season. He, you know, so he's had a couple calls on him that just have been garbage. Yeah, yeah, and, and Sherman has had a couple on him that have just been like just terrible. And there have been some on uh, on the Forty Nine receivers where they're getting their jerseys tugged and stuff like that. And they don't see it. It's just. It's just NFL officiating. It's just, re- it's just, it is what it is, right? It's, it's always terrible. Like this is par for the course for them, right? Like you can't expect them to be good. They've always been bad. They always will be bad. That's, that's a conversation for another time. But it seemed like the Ruben Foster thing really got to them. And especially coming off a of bye week, they, they just didn't seem prepared. They seemed kind of shell shocked. They seemed like they were disinterested and really just kind of along for the ride. And Tampa Bay, who's not that great of a team, they have the offense. But again, like you said, they hadn't forced. They hadn't forced a turnover in eight weeks, Al. That was the first, the two interceptions on Mullins were the first turnovers forced in eight weeks. So it's just, it's just kind of snowballed from there. And it just, I, I really hope that they can keep it together and that they don't start tuning out Kyle Shanahan because honestly speaking, like they're, they're bad. They're a bad team, but they're not like bottom of the league bad. Like it's like, Hey, you're bad, but we know why you're bad. It's mostly because of injuries. And with Jimmy Garoppolo, like they would probably be like a, six and 10, seven to nine team, maybe, maybe. And really what it comes down to is that they don't have their starting quarterback, starting running back. And and I'm going to ease up off them. I know I've been pretty critical of them the last few weeks, but th- one of this, this is one of those situations where I think that if they have Jimmy Garoppolo in this game, they, they win, they don't lose this game. And if the Ruben Foster thing doesn't happen, then, then it's a much closer game than it is. The only silver lining that I can give you after the Ruben Foster thing is that it's not like he was contributing heavily anyways. It's not like he was an irreplaceable player. Like he, it's not like he was co- causing turnovers and getting interceptions and, and recovering fumbles and things like that. He was, he was, a, he was a really good player, really talented player, but it's not like he was one of those guys that was an every down player in every single game, the season that they were counting on, they were playing much of the season without him. So it's not like they're used to playing with him. And I, and I think that this is one of those games that, 
kind of showed you, okay, well, this is what the future could look like if they don't improve. And they will improve. They'll get they'll get bodies back from injuries and they'll get they'll get some free agent signings. But it's just it's just disheartening out to see them lose every week. And it's frustrating. And they made Tampa Bay look like a nine and one team. And they were three and seven. So really for me, like it was one of those where hey, throw the game tape in the garbage, move on to the next week, only to get blasted by Seattle <laughs> in the next week, which we'll get into in a sec. But my game ball, it goes to Matt Breida. And Matt Breida had another 100-yard performance. Really, really bright spot. Like one, one of the only bright spots this year on the 49ers team, period. And I think that he's kind of cemented himself as the, the running back one. I think that he'll be the starter next year. So Matt Breida, he has my game ball. Yeah, and like you said, I think next week could get ugly in, in Seattle. Seattle deserves a lot of credit. They were supposed to be rebuilding this year, and they're 6-5 and five and pushing for a playoff spot, and they have to play the Niners twice, so that may be at least eight wins there. So you know, they, they do deserve a lot of credit for what they're doing. And and I just hope that there's good individual performances from people we want to see for the Niners. At this point, I know I said in the previous show, and I, I don't like this whole number one pick thing. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't like looking into games, hoping you lose. I, I hate it. But at this point, they need, like I keep saying, they need those game wreckers. They need those blue chip big time players, and they're not going to get the guy they need. I mean, they might, but they're not going to get Bosa if they're picking three or four. So at this point, as much as it pains me to say it, maybe hope for a two and 14 season or three and 13 if it still gives them the number one pick and, and that they just end up with Bosa. I don't think they're going to win another game. I, where's the win, where are the wins going to come from? Yeah, I don't see where it's unless the Rams play second stringers, third stringers, and they happen to figure it out. I, I don't see it. Sean McVay got embarrassed in LA when Jimmy lit them up and and they blew them out in LA. I don't think Sean McVay's gonna do that again. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen again. I think Sean McVay's gonna at least play starters for one half and they'll probably finish it in one half because it'll be either Mullins or CJ Beathard starting. Or or Tom's oh actually you know Tom Savage was picked up by somebody else, so it's not gonna be Tom Savage. Yeah, but I think he's on the Bengals now, I think. Um yeah, Seattle. So, <laughs> uh, Seattle so near and dear to my heart, Al. You know, I you know how much love I have for the Seahawks and their fans and everybody who cheers for them. And uh, man, I, I I love it just as much as shoving shoving nails, iron nails underneath my fingernails. I love them that much. <laughs> um, I think that this game really comes down to what the 49ers can do, like you said, as individuals, this is not going to be one of those where we're expecting them to win. Seattle's always a tough place to play. They haven't won there since 2011. I believe they've lost, uh, what is it? Nine straight games to the Seahawks. Taylor price, our friend put that stat out where the Niners have lost nine straight. And, um, it's just one of those things where they, they just never go to Seattle healthy. They never go there with all of, uh, their, their roster intact. And they never go there with a full clip. They're always missing somebody. They're always rebuilding. They're always missing a quarterback or a running back or a receiver or have just fired a coach. Or It's one of those, always one of those things. And I, I put out a tweet earlier giving Seattle credit for the, the job that they've done in staying competitive. And I, w- I want to talk a little bit about Seattle and what they have, right? They have Russell Wilson, obviously. We know that. They've got Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright uh, still on the defense, and they've got a pretty good running game. Um, they've got Rashad Penny. They've got Pro Size coming back. They've got Doug Baldwin at the receiver spot, and their offensive line is is much improved this year. And what they've done, Al, is that they've taken a little bit of the onus off of Russell Wilson to uh, to be that game changing quarterback. And 
they've put more of the load on the run the running backs and they're starting to become what they were back in 2012 and 2013 is more of a running team and more of a ball control team. And I think that's the winning formula for them because as good as Russell Wilson is as, at the quarterback position, I don't think he's an elite quarterback and he, he has never been an elite quarterback in my opinion. He's a top 10 quarterback who is the beneficiary of a really good defense when they won against Carolina and the Carolina game was a textbook, like, Oh, the other team screws up. So we're going to come back and capitalize on that Seattle win. That's what they do, right? That's how they win and credit to them for winning like that because they're an opportunistic team, but Graham Gano misses a field goal. Seattle comes down. They drive down the game winning field goal as time expires. So really it was, I believe the fifth time in Russell Wilson's career that the opposing team has scored 25 points and the Seahawks have won. So he doesn't do well when the, when the opposing team scores a lot of points, he usually loses. And to me, that's telling because that, that shows me that he's reliant heavily on his defense. And I think that with Russell Wilson, what you have is you have a guy that is really good at being a system quarterback. And if you, if you know how to contain him, you can, you can beat him. And if you know how to stop him from running the ball and, and stop chasing after him when he runs around the circles, you can beat him. And we're going to see that because the 49ers have an inferior team. We'll see them running around circles and we'll see him having his way. But with the Seahawks, what it is is that they, they rely on Russell Wilson making plays at the right time. Like Al, if you look at Russell Wilson's first half this year, most of the games, he's like seven of 10 for like 45 yards or five of 11 for like 73 yards. He has many of those games. He's a second half, fourth quarter quarterback. And that's what makes them so dangerous. And as good as they've been, it's funny because I, I had a little Twitter battle with Dan Graziano from ESPN, who I really respect, who I really, who I really like, uh, and, and read a lot of his stuff. And we were kind of going back and forth on Twitter about it. He put an article that, uh, said that this is Pete Carroll's most impressive coaching job yet. And I called it garbage because I thought it was garbage. And (laughs) because I think that Pete Carroll's done a much better job when all of these players that he had were rookies back in 2012. Um, I think that Seattle as impressive as the job has been, they're still only a 500 team. They're not going to end up the season at 500 because they have a week second half of the schedule, but they're six and five right now. They're nine and nine since Richard Sherman went down last year. They're four and six in the last 10 home games. So it's not like they're beating everybody. It's not like they're beating the world. They're just coming across teams that are either weak and, or having their games that are tough at home. Oh, look at, look at this. Look at these two schedules here. The 49ers, they played the Vikings, Chiefs, LA Chargers, and Green Bay Packers all on the road. The Seattle Seahawks are playing Vikings, Chiefs, Packers, who they've already played, and um, Vikings, Chiefs, Pack- Vikings, Chiefs, Packers, and uh, LA Chargers, who also they've already played at home. Why is it that Seattle gets all their tough games at home? How does that happen? They had a better record than the 49ers last year. Yeah, they get all their tough games at home. So like, like I said, they capitalize off of these little things that other teams are not able to capitalize off of. And that's what makes them great. Honestly speaking, they're a 500 team. That's where they should be. That's where they are. We'll see if they can beat KC and Minnesota at home. I think they'll probably beat one of them, but they'll probably end up the season nine and seven, maybe 10 and six, and they will be one and done, one down in the playoffs. But when it comes to playing the 49ers, of course they're superior and, the, and they'll, it's going to get ugly. So I know I said six, five last week and that was, I was way off, but I'll get, I'll go with the more realistic score this week. Al. I'm going to say that the Seahawks win 34 to 10. Like, I don't think this is going to be close. The 49ers just, they're rebuilding, right? And the Seahawks are a playoff contending team. So 34, 10 Seahawks. 
If anybody's looking for a Christmas gift for Zane, a Russell Wilson jersey or LeBron James jersey is, is what to get him. You know what? Zane have, loves Russell Wilson and LeBron James. Which is kind of funny because every single player whose jersey I buy or consider buying, they either are cut, they end up not being good anymore, or they get injured. Like, yeah, get a throwback Montana at this point. You just don't even get a seriously. I should have throwbacks. A, I, have, I have a throwback yeah. Montana. Actually, that's my favorite one. Like, I got a Jimmy Garoppolo jersey earlier this year. I was gifted it uh, by my wife, and uh, and obviously you saw what happened. So the jersey curse continues. Send me a Russell Wilson jersey. Send me a LeBron jersey. <laughs> I won't wear it, but you know I'll own it, so I can I can hex those guys. All right, Zane. I got nothing left. You got anything left? No, man. It just uh, you know this is one of those seasons where the 49ers fans have to kind of buckle up and you have to hope for the best because you know that it's going to get better next year and it's going to get frustrating. There will be more frustrating times. I'm saying that to myself too, but. We just have to really buckle down and, and understand that there are brighter times ahead. There are, whether it's frustrating or bright, we will be there with you on the 49ers web zone. No huddle podcast for Zane. This is Al. Thanks everybody. See you.